The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. James. Now we are in week three. I would encourage you to go back and listen to any messages that you might have missed. They've been so good so far. And I think I've come to the conclusion, I, as I have studied James like never before, that I really like James. Like I think that me and James would have hit it off. I think we would have been buddies. I like James because he is very straightforward. He is very clear. Like he does not beat around the bush. Like he is, he's super clear. And some people, I know I have experience, some people think that when you are clear that you are harsh, <laughs> but we say at New Song, clear is kind. Oh, yeah. Think about it, like if you go to the doctor and you you're dealing with a health struggle and she sees something alarming on your test results, you don't want her to sugarcoat it, you don't want her to kind of like skirt around it, you want her to be straightforward, you want her to be clear. Clear is kind, like you want your mechanic you want your dentist, you want your accountant to be clear with you, students. You want your teachers to be clear with you. I know you do. I know sometimes it's not good, but, but what if you're failing like every test and they just keep putting like a little great job stamp on your test and they're not letting you know how you're really doing? You're going to be pretty mad when you get to the end of the semester and you've got to take that class over at summer school because your teacher wasn't clear with you. Clear is kind. And by this measure, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is a very kind man. Uh, James has a very different writing style than, say, Paul. Paul wrote in kind of long, run-on sentences, deep thoughts. He wrote things like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He wrote, if I could speak of all the languages of earth and of angels, but I did not have love, I would be like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, metaphors and things. James is like, hey, greetings, put up or shut up. Like, your lives contradict the gospel. You, 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 you act like agreeing with Jesus is enough to transform you into the image of Jesus. James says, you talk too much and talk is cheap. He says, you're talking too much, you're transforming too little. He is very kind. He is very clear and he has to be because James is writing these letters to the first century church, the first Jewish Christians, and they have been dispersed. They have been scattered all across the Mediterranean world like Pastor Josh talked about last week. And they're facing persecution and, and they're in these hostile environments. And I, they're up against a lot of temptations. And I think one of the greatest temptations that they are facing based on what James is writing is a similar temptation to what we face today as the modern church in the Bible Belt of America. And that temptation is to let intellectual agreement, I agree with that, that's really good, yes and amen, and to let intellectual agreement pass for true faith. Or let me say it like this. Their greatest temptation was to think that knowing good facts about Jesus and agreeing with him was enough to transform them into his image. Now, just like knowing all the good facts about the Beatles, about John, Paul, George, and Ringo, knowing every lyric to every song, let's test your Beatles trivia, okay? Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper cup. They slither wildly as they slip away across the... 
There you go. That was for you, Dad. I hope that you enjoyed that. Uh, that doesn't make me a Beatle. I can know every lyric, every song, every trivia, agree with all their songs, which I don't. But if I did, it doesn't make me a Beatle. Just like knowing all the things about Jesus does not make you a true disciple of Jesus. Being a doer of the word yes. is what proves your faith, not just intellectual agreement. Agreeing in your mind with the way of Jesus is not the call of Christ's followers. Understanding deep theology, intellectual assent, that is not your destiny. It is your destiny to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And the, and the, transform, the transformation comes in the doing. It comes in the practicing of the way. It comes into integrating the teachings of Jesus into every nook and cranny of your real life, every day, living and moving and going to work, practicing the way of Jesus. That's where the transformation comes. Now, don't get me wrong. Theology is important. You need good theology. You need to understand and read your Bible like Pastor Josh talked about last week. In fact, every Monday, we pray here for the staff, or the staff prays here for you by name. All the members of New Song Church, we have these little cards and we hand them out. And if you're on my card on Monday morning, one of the things I'm praying for you is that you would grow from Ephesians, that you would grow in spiritual wisdom and insight and knowledge, but that that's not the end game, that the knowledge leads to transformation, transforming into the image of Jesus. So the goal of James, as he writes these letters, is twofold. It is to expose hypocritical thinking. So get ready for that. And at the same time, he is reminding us of the teachings of Jesus. We see James, I think this is sweet, uh, pointing back to the teachings of Jesus over and over again, even though that James didn't believe into Jesus until after the resurrection. He's pointing people back to the messages that he wasn't paying much attention to when his brother was teaching him here on the earth. He leads us to the Sermon on the Mount again and again and again. And the Sermon on the Mount is not just a sermon. It is the kingdom manifesto. It is a concise guide to life in the kingdom that when applied will result in a life that can stand up against any storm. That is the Sermon on the Mount. And we are doing a series on that in 2022. And I am very pumped about that. Uh, so he's going he's gonna to point out hypocritical practices, and then he's going to point us back to the teachings of Jesus. Now, warning. Somebody say, I've been warned. <laughs> As we work our way through this teaching text, I expect you to feel some conviction. Not condemnation, but conviction. And this is good. Conviction is good. Conviction is the process of becoming undeceived. Now, if you want to stay deceived, if you feel some conviction then just ignore it. But if you want to become undeceived today, then if you feel conviction from the Holy Spirit, don't ignore it. Press into it. Don't be scared of it. Lean into it. Let it do its undeceiving work. We want to become undeceived. I want you to leave this place today on your way to looking more like Jesus in these areas than you did before you heard this teaching. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can come together today 
and, uh, with, the, with the body of believers and just worship you, be in your presence, that you have something for us, that you're not done with us yet, that we're continually transforming into your image, God. We thank you uh, just for speaking to us. We say to you right now, we are here for you, nothing else. We lay aside every distraction. We lay aside every burden that we carried in here and we give you our full attention. What do you wanna say? What do you want to do? We are here for it. We are here for you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, James chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, get them out. And I'm going to break up our tradition this morning, like we sang about. Stand to your feet with me as we read this text. I want to give honor to the Word of God. I want to put you in a different posture this morning. I want you to lean into this. I don't want you to check out. I want you to, to really lean in. Don't miss it. It's 29 verses, but it's so good. Let this text, because it's alive and living and sharper than any two-edged sword, let it read you to you this morning. You ready? All right, James 2, 1 through 29. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose somebody comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who's poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said... You must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when, not if, when he judges you. And with that, you may be seated. You guys ready for this? You ready? Somebody say, help us, James. All right, you probably don't need me to tell you this because, again, James is so clear. But the theme for the text and this message today is there is no discrimination in the life of a disciple of Jesus. Discrimination has no place in the life of a disciple of Jesus. Your, your translation may be a little bit different. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It may, it may have said favoritism, partiality, prejudice, however you want to say it. Favoritism, partiality, prejudice, discrimination. None of them have a place in the life of a disciple of Jesus. James is saying we cannot claim to have faith in Jesus while at the same time favoring some people over others. 
Apparently, this is something that the early Christians were struggling with. They were openly and unashamedly judging people based on their outward appearance, and it was leading them to discriminating, hypocritical behaviors, things that were not in line with the way of Jesus. He gives this real-life example of somebody walking into one of their meetings, and they are just dressed to the nines, and they got rings all over their fingers, which were a big status symbol back then. And when they see this person dressed in luxury, they say, here, come on, you can have the best seat in the house. But then somebody else walks in, and they're tattered, and their clothes are torn, and they look like they haven't showered in days. They're probably homeless and a beggar, and they say, you stinky guy, like just sit over there, sit on the floor, stay out of the way. This is discrimination. It is favoritism. It is prejudice. And James says very clearly, it is wrong. It is a sin. It is evil. Now, maybe you're hearing this today and you're dealing with a little bit of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, which is where you think that we as a society, we as a church, the modern day church, like this is way far behind us. This is like in our past, we have come so far, we have advanced so far past that silly, ancient, early church. But we still deal with this in 2021. Let me give you a few modern day examples. For example, Suppose someone comes into your meeting and they have 300,000 followers on Instagram and another comes in who has 30. If you give special attention to the one who calls himself an influencer and you say to the unpopular one, like, you can have a seat over there, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? For example, suppose somebody comes into your meeting dressed in a BLM shirt and another comes into your meeting dressed in a MAGA hat. If you say to the one, you can have a special seat over here and you discriminate against the other, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? For example, suppose somebody comes into your meeting and they shop at the same places that you shop and they have the same skin color as you and they have the same likes and interests as you and you give them a special seat, but you say to the one who doesn't look like you, they shop somewhere else, they don't have the same skin color as you, you can sit over here on the floor out of the way. Doesn't this discrimination show that your motives are guided by evil? Yeah. This one's for the students. Suppose that somebody comes into your meeting and they're wearing Travis Scott Jordans. And another comes into your meeting and they're wearing off-brand light-ups. And you say to the Jordans, you can sit over here with us. But to the off-brand light-ups, you sit over there, out of the way. You're not welcome over here with us, with, with, the, with, the, with the, the cool shoes. Doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen, we still struggle with this. We have not advanced in our society past the early church. We still struggle with this. We all every day are tempted to make misguided judgments about people based on their outward appearance. And think about this with me. If the judgments are misguided, then how we treat them is going to be misguided. And this is going to lead us to mistreat people. This is why it's a sin. This is why it's evil. This is why it breaks the heart of God. And maybe you're thinking, well, glory to God. Thank God I am not evil. Thank God I'm a new creation in Christ and I never have to deal with evil motives ever again because I've been saved, born again. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. But Jesus said it best in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you then, 
being evil. He wasn't talking to terrorists. He was talking to a group of people that he was teaching about praying, asking, seeking, knocking for the kingdom of God. He's saying, if you then being evil, we're all evil in comparison to our heavenly father. We're all evil. And we, even though have been made a new creation in Christ, we still have a flesh and our flesh is still working out our salvation. We have a flesh and guess what? Your flesh desires the opposite of what your spirit wants. Paul says in Galatians, our sinful nature wants to do evil. That's what Paul said. So what do we do? We have to deal with our flesh. We have to deal harshly with our flesh. We have to be brutal with our flesh. We have to mortify our flesh. We can't just excuse it and be like, well, nobody's perfect. I'm going to make snap judgments on people. That's just human nature. No, we got to flush the flesh. That's what we say it in our house. Flush the flesh. Your flesh is showing. Flush your flesh. We got to be brutal with it. I don't know about you, but I don't want my flesh that desires evil to be the thing that is directing my motives, to be the thing that's animating my life. I want the spirit of the living God to be the thing that's directing my motives and animating my life. So what I have to do is I have to realize that me being evil has to deal with my flesh daily, crucify my flesh, and I have to feed my spirit. How do we do this? Through spiritual disciplines. I am pumped about the new series and new song students about spiritual practices. We got to do these spiritual practices. We got to get in the word of God. Let it read us. We got to spend time fellowshipping with him, in communion with him, get lost in, in, in the presence of God daily, not just here, a little fill me up at church on Sunday and then nothing the rest of the week. Your spirit is going to be malnourished and it's not going to be able to, to animate your life. Your flesh is going to be running the show. You got to do these spiritual disciplines so that your spirit can be built up. I don't know about you, but I want to be so full of the spirit of God that when I see people, I see what God sees, not what my evil flesh sees. So Let's talk about our fleshly view of people versus God's view of people. I want to get brutal with our flesh today, not just because, but I want to make way for the spirit of God to do what it wants to do. You said it. Do whatever you want to, God. Do you mean it? Do you mean it? Let's get undeceived. All right. I've got three points for you about misguided judgment of people, which I'm going to set right beside three points about a merciful view of people. So the misguided view that comes from our evil flesh, the merciful view comes from the spirit of God. So it's flesh versus spirit here. Where do you fall on the spectrum? Number one, misguided view, the flesh. We discriminate based on outward appearance. The merciful view, the spirit, God looks past the outward appearance to the heart. I don't know if you noticed in the real life example that James gave, Nobody took any time to get to know anybody that was coming into the meeting. There was no relationship pursued. There were no questions asked. All of the decisions that they were making were based on what they saw with their eyes, their outward appearance. This is not the way of Jesus. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord tells Samuel, the prophet, I want a new king. I want to anoint a new king of Israel. This is 
Israel. This is God's chosen people. This is his inheritance. And Saul is not fitting the bill. It's a big deal. He needs a new king. So he turns to Samuel, the trusted prophet, and he says to them, I need you to go find a man named Jesse. You're going to anoint one of his sons to be the next king of Israel over my chosen people. So Samuel shows up to Jesse's place and he invites him and his sons to take place in this purification sacrifice. The sons walk into the room and Samuel is seeing them for the first time. Look what happens in verses six and seven. It says, when they, the sons, when they arrived, Samuel took one look, one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, this is Samuel, who had been the Lord's special helper since he was just the wee lad. Remember Samuel that's asleep and he keeps hearing the voice of God and finally they say, he, he learns to say, speak Lord for your servant is listening. This is that Samuel. He is such an established prophet that the Lord said, I will see to it that no word that comes out of your mouth will fall to the ground. Like Samuel and God were super duper close. Samuel must have been an extremely spiritual person practicing all the spiritual disciplines and yet we see his flesh get in the way. We see that his flesh is showing here as he goes to pick the new king and he is tempted to base his choice on outward appearance. He's looking at Eliab and thinking, man, he's over six feet tall. He's got like a nice square jaw, big broad shoulders, head full of hair. This has got to be the next king of Israel. Samuel thought that height and looks were good metrics for choosing the next king of Israel. His flesh is showing here. Notice the verse said he took one look. How telling is this of human nature? How many times do we size people up with just one look? What the Lord is trying to show Samuel is that somebody can look the part all day, but lack the heart. And our world is full of pictures and images and people who are trying to look the part. We are successful. We are happy. We are spiritual. We are fit. We are healthy. Look, we captured it all in an image for you with our iPhone that has three cameras. My kids are so embarrassed of my iPhone and that it only has one camera. <laughs> but here's the thing. God is not looking at anything that can be captured in a photograph. He's looking past that. And we have to be transforming and renewing our minds so that we can get to that place too, so that we can look past what can be captured in a picture. I read this quote this week and I thought it was very, very telling of the importance that our culture places on appearance. It says, the world is full of idolatries, those things that we worship instead of God. But, if I, or, but I question if any idolatry has been more extensively practiced than the idolatry or worship of the outward appearance. We worship the outward appearance, ours and everybody else's. So Samuel's first instinct here, his flesh, his misguided view is to look at the outward appearance. But I love the patience that God shows Samuel. 
It's the same patience that he shows to us. He's not like, Samuel, you misguided fool. Like, (laughs) I'm done with you. Like, I got to find a new prophet because clearly you don't get it. No, he's very gentle. And he just says, Samuel, like, hey, I love you. You're my main man. But abs and height, that's not the right metric. I'm looking at the heart. This guy looks the part, but you can't see his heart. And this is not the kind of heart that I want for the king of my people. So Samuel goes through all of seven, seven of Jesse's sons, and he's asking the Lord, show, show me what you see. Help me to see what you see. What if we begin to ask the Lord that every weekend before he walked into church? Help me see what you see. What if we ask that on the way to the office? Lord, will you help me see what you see? On the way to school, will you help me see what you see, God? When you're in those situations where you want so badly to judge somebody because of that one look and you think you've got them all figured out, Lord, help me to see what you see. So Samuel's going through these sons, wanting to see what God sees, and he's not seeing it. There's no, there's no heart that seems right. And so he gets to the end of the line, and he says to Jesse, do you have any more sons around here? And Jesse says, yeah. And I'm sure he's thinking, but you're not going to like what you see because the last son, David, was somewhere between the ages of 10 to 15, according to historians who figure that kind of stuff out, somewhere between 10 and 15. I'm guessing he hadn't hit his growth spurt yet. Maybe he didn't have those broad shoulders like Eliab, probably more pudgy in the face than square. His hair was probably like messy and matted because he's probably rolling around with sheep or wrestling bear or whatever (laughs) David was doing. But lo and behold, he comes in from the fields and the one who looked least like a king based on their outward appearance is the one that God chose because he was looking at David's heart. When you look at people, what's your metric? For determining what kind of seat they get in your life what's your metric for determining how you're going to treat them what kind of attention you're going to give to them what's your metric for determining if you'll invite them to your small group what's your metric for determining if you'll ask them to the school dance or ask them to sit with you at your lunch table what's your metric for for inviting somebody into your world there's only one right metric and it's the appearance of the heart which presents a problem because you and i can't physically see somebody's heart what's going on inside their mind their will their emotions but for every problem there's a holy solution aren't you thankful for the word of god that tells us the holy solution in romans 8 14 it says for all who are led by the spirit of god are children of god He wants to lead you by the same spirit that he led Samuel to choose David. He wants to lead you. The spirit of God wants to lead you. If you're a child of God, you should be declaring this over yourself every day. Those who are children of God are led by the spirit of God. He wants to lead you. He wants to help you see beyond the outward appearance into somebody's heart. Last year, one of my kids played on a basketball team at the YMCA, and their coach was obviously a lesbian. And she had a child who was on the team, and uh, her girlfriend, or it was her girlfriend's child that was on the team. And so her girlfriend would come to all the games, sit in the stands. She's very passionate about YMCA basketball and uh, very vulgar in her language and just kind of like, just kind of out there, right? 
And uh, one day after a game, I was in my bathroom getting ready for work, and I just had this burden to pray for her. So I began to pray for her, and I kid you not, as I am praying for her, I could sense the love that God has for this woman. Like I could sense it, like whoosh, like flood into my bathroom, like it was thick, it was tangible. And I'm praying for her, and, and God says, whenever you see her, tell her you're praying for her, and tell her how much I love her. Tell her, tell her that I want her to know how much I love her. So after a basketball game, she comes over and she's griping because the game didn't go how she wanted it to go. And she's saying, sorry, I get so passionate about this, but this is just, this is my life. This is my family. These people are the only people that I have that I care about. And so it kind of led into this perfect segue. Well, you know, you mentioned that God's had me praying for you this week. And as I prayed, I could sense his real tangible love for you. And he wanted you to know that, I'm, that he has me praying for you and that he loves you. Like he loves you. It was so incredible, his love for you, how I felt it. And she said, you know, my dad's a pastor. I know I'm not living right, that kind of thing. I said, well, why don't you, why don't you come to church with me this weekend? Why don't you come, come to our church? And she was like, well, you know I'm a lesbian, right? I said, yeah. She said, what kind of messages does your pastor preach? And I was like, well, you can ask him. He's right over there. <laughs> and then she asked me if she was going to go to hell because she's a lesbian. I was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, here's the thing. God is looking for those who are willing to sacrifice, to lay down everything for him, including their sexuality. That's not all he's after. That's not all he's going to ask you to lay down. But he's going to ask you to lay down everything that's not pleasing to him. And she said, okay. And I pray. I said, can I pray with you? Because she also told me she got a bad diagnosis that week. So I prayed with her. She let me pray for her right there in the middle of the basketball court. And then she came to church a couple of times. Uh, even after I told her the truth and love that she probably wasn't wanting to hear. And Josh and I picked her up a couple times and her girlfriend because their car broke down and they couldn't make it to the game. And we just did everything we could to show them the love of Jesus. I don't know where they're at. haven't talked to them much since the basketball season ended. And I'm not telling you that story to tell you like, oh, I'm just the greatest Christian and I minister to everybody I see. I'm telling you that story because my first look was, this is not my people. I'm going to sit on this side of the bleachers with the moms that I know from, from church. Like, that's not my people. But God showed me her heart. Is your metric off? If so, repent. Ask God to lead you by the Spirit of God who knows all things. I couldn't have known that that girl is a pastor's kid that has some knowledge of, of a relationship with Jesus that had a bad diagnosis this week. I couldn't have known all of those things, but the Spirit of God knows all things, and he wants to lead us in our interactions with humankind. Isn't that exciting? Oh, so good. Okay, number two, misguided view, our flesh. We favor people with material wealth. Merciful view, the Spirit. God's spirit. God chose the poor, those with nothing to offer but faith and obedience. I think Madonna or her songwriters, I'm guessing Madonna did not write her own songs. She wasn't like the Beatles. She didn't write her own stuff. But this song, she kind of sums up the culture of, of the world pretty accurately. She says, the boy with the cold hard cash is always Mr. Right because we're living in a material world 
and I am a material girl. Basically, what Madonna is selling here is discrimination. Like, the guy that doesn't make a lot of money, don't give him the time of day. The boy with the cold, hard cash, he's always Mr. Right. Well, what, what if the, the cash came from selling drugs? What if the cash came because, like, he's a really good hitman? Or what if he's in the mafia? Or, like, I don't know. Like, it does not. This is a lie. Like, the guy with the cold, hard cash is not always Mr. Right. That's the lie. But the truth in this song is that we are living in a material world. Culture tells us that material wealth equals success and happiness and the end of all problems. And we see people with nice cars and nice clothes and nice homes and all the nice things that money can buy. And we think they must have it all figured out. So I'm going to treat them better than I treat other people that don't have it all figured out because their car is not as nice. This is what the church was doing. And James says, guys, you're forgetting something pretty crucial to the kingdom message of Jesus. He says in verse five, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? He's pointing them back to the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, you guys can't keep actively favoring rich people over poor people. Because remember what Jesus said, the poor will inherit the kingdom of God promised to those who love him. And you're catering your meetings, especially for a bunch of rich people with a bunch of rings that can prove their wealth. Listen, God doesn't favor the rich. He didn't back then, and he doesn't today. In fact, Jesus said that riches could be a hindrance to the kingdom of God. You remember the story of the rich young ruler where, where he wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, yeah, man, come on with it. Let's go. Let's do this. You can be one of my disciples. I just need you to leave behind all your material possessions. And he's like, oh, like, I can't. I can't do it. And he walks away from an invitation to follow Jesus because of his wealth. And after this, Jesus says to the disciples who saw it all go down, he said, I tell you the truth. It's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we've seen this, we've seen this played out in church history. Like comparatively, I guess, according to statistics and stuff, that more people who are poor have said yes to the gospel than those who are rich. Why is this? Probably because the poor don't have a safety net. Like they have nothing to fall back on. They have nothing to like, they don't have to make this choice of like material possessions or following Jesus. It's just following Jesus. That's why it's easier for them to walk into a relationship with God. We judge people based on material wealth. If they have more than others, then we treat them better than others. And James says it's not right. God chose the poor. Now, does this mean that we discriminate against the rich? No. And be glad about that. Because every person sitting in this room is rich, according to the, Lord's, according to the world standards. We're rich. You got a car? You drove a car here? You wealthy. You rich. We don't discriminate against the rich, yet people do this. People do this to the rich almost as much as they do it to the poor. Like somebody comes in in a nice car and they make, take one look and they make a judgment about them and kind of write them off like, who does she think she is coming in here in that car? It's jealousy, it's intimidation. We discriminate against the rich. Hear me. We don't favor the rich over the poor, but we also don't favor the poor 
over the rich because God chose both. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, black, white, rich, poor, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. So, he didn't only choose the poor, he chose both, but it is important to remember in our interactions with the poor that he chose the poor first. God chose a poor family for Jesus to be born into. F.B. Meyer writes, there's nothing that men dread more than poverty, but it's God's chosen lot. He had one opportunity only of living our life, and he chose to be born of parents too poor. Whew, Jesus. Too poor to present more than two doves at his presentation in the temple. Of all the people he could have chosen, he chose Mary and Joseph. He wasn't looking at their wealth, at their dowries, at like whatever. He wasn't looking at that. Their faith and obedience was greater than any offering they could have presented at the temple. He wasn't looking for a family with the most wealth, but a couple that was rich in faith. That's what he found in Mary and Joseph. God's looking for people who are empty-handed, but alive in his hands. How do you treat the poor? Do you act as if they don't exist? Do you, like me, like I've done before, look at the guy holding the sign and think or say out loud, Lord, forgive me. How many bridges must this person had to have burned to get to this place? Do you discriminate against the poor? I've seen this take place in church conferences full of pastors. Like they act out James 2 and it is so ugly. I struggle with this. I get mad. (laughs) But you go to these conferences and and it's like the big givers and the ones with the blue check mark by their Instagram name, here's your special seating, roped off. Y'all are untouchable. Everybody else just sit wherever. You see it in the church, among church leadership. I know the church that I was growing up in, my, my parents left that church after years and years of going there and serving there and giving there and being planted there. They left that church for another church because we began to bring a poor family with us and they were poor. I remember going to their house, opening up their cabinets, looking through their cabinets. They, the only food they had in their house was an off-brand box of Triscuits. I'll never forget that. We'd bring them to church and yes, they were a little bit unruly. Yes, they were a little bit wild. But the people going to the church, the leadership, the teachers in Sunday school and children's ministry, they discriminated against them. They made it known they did not want these kids around their kids and they discriminated against my family for bringing them. How do you treat the poor? The size of someone's bank account didn't matter to Jesus and it shouldn't matter to you. Shouldn't matter to me. We got to quit judging people based on the neighborhood they live in, the car that they drive, the clothes that they wear. This is a false metric. And if we judge people by these things, then we will mistreat people, the very people that God chose to be rich in faith. So we do live in a material world. I thought it was funny. My son Gus was here last night. He took wonderful notes. I was like, dude, he got it. It was so exciting talking to him about it. But he was like, who's Madonna? (laughs) We do live in a material world. We do. But we have to remember that we do not have to be conformed into the pattern of a material girl or a material 
boy. We have to be actively, actively living out Romans 12 too. We will not be conformed to the pattern of Madonna. We will not be conformed to the pattern of the Kardashians, of prosperity preachers, of Hollywood, of corporate America. We will not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds with the teachings of Jesus, which say that material things do not matter. He says, quit worrying about that stuff. It doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter to you, and their material things shouldn't matter to you. This is the teaching of Jesus. Rich in faith is always greater than rich in finances in God's kingdom. Number three, misguided view, our flesh. We discriminate based on selfish ambitions. The merciful view, the spirit, spirit of God. God serves those who could never repay him. James has given this example He's been very clear. He's talking about how what they're not doing is right. And then he says this in James 8 and 9, 2, 8 and 9. He says, yes, indeed. It's good when you obey the royal law as found in scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin and you're guilty of breaking the law. So why does he throw this in there? He's getting out in front of the, of the church because he's guessing they're going to rebut this of like, oh, no, no. When we did that thing where we like gave that guy with the rings the special treatment, we were just loving our neighbor as ourselves. Like, that's good, that's the royal law. We were disobeying the royal law. But they were deceived because they were under the, the assumption that they got to decide who their neighbor was gonna be. And I think we do the same thing. They let their flesh be the casting director when looking to fill the part of neighbor to love. Mm, I need to cast a neighbor to love. Who's going to be, who fits the part? That guy with all the rings because he has something to offer me in return. Maybe he'll let me borrow one of those rings. Maybe he'll let me uh, uh, borrow his fancy camels. He'll help me build the church. I'll cast him as neighbor because they have something to offer me in return. They'll let me take a selfie with them at the soup kitchen and then I can post it on my Instagram and it'll make me feel better about myself. I'll cast them as my neighbor because she's needy and I've got a server and stuff, but she agrees with me and she pacifies my need to be right. She's got something to offer me in return. We cast our neighbors like it's some big casting call, but the Christian life is not a casting call. The Christian life is about casting yourself as a neighbor. I'm going to be the neighbor to whoever, whenever, if they're in need of compassion and mercy, I'm going to be that for them, even if they look like they have nothing to offer me in return. I'm going to serve people like Jesus served people. Listen, our flesh is selfish even in serving and giving. Have you noticed this? Oh, I don't like it. I don't like it, but it's true. Our flesh is selfish even in, in giving and even in serving. We're always working this like selfish angle. It's so ugly. I hate it. I want to be over it. But, but, but think about like you, you take out the trash and that's not your normal job. Like, and so you're serving, you're trying to be selfless, but then they don't say thank you or they don't notice you and you get mad because you were, you were looking for something in return or mine. Like I'll, I'll give a gift. And if they don't say thank you, then I will be, I'll be complaining and griping about that person. They did not even say thank you when I gave them that gift. Like that bothers us. We're selfish even in serving and giving. What if we stopped? doing that, looking for something in return, choosing our neighbors based on what we think they might be able to give to us in return based on their outward appearance. What if we stopped doing that and we just got to the place where this glorifies God? That's all I need. 
I don't need a thank you. I don't need praise. I don't need to be noticed. Just glorifies God. Audience of one. That's it. That's enough for me. Is, is glorifying God enough? Is it enough motivation for you to love and serve others? Is glorifying God enough to cause you to get like real super serious about guarding your heart against favoring other people? Could you do it for the glory of God? I hope that the glory of God is enough motivation. But if it's not, these last four minutes, let's talk about everybody's favorite subject, the judgment seat of Christ. (laughs) James went there, so we got to go there too. James 2, verse 12 through 13. He says, so whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. What you say and do, the way you and I treat people, it matters and it has consequences. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. There is a judgment seat and you will stand before it and every one of your actions will be judged, but not just your actions, the motivation behind your actions will also be judged. So I I showed up and served and kids that will be judged, but what was your motivation for the reason that you showed up and served and kids? Not just your actions, but your motivation behind your your actions. Now, thank God, like literally thank God that this judgment seat of Christ does not determine your place in the family of God. That's a great white throne of judgment. And when you sit down in that throne, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, if you've been washed in his blood, if you believe that he died and rose again and you said yes to following him all the days of your life, when you sit down on the great white throne of judgment, all God will see is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thank God. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. But this judgment seat of Christ, this is a different seat. And what this seat tells us is that it's very possible to have a saved soul, but a wasted life. That's what James is trying to get across. That's why he's being so clear and straightforward. What we do matters and why we do it matters. Will your motives for the way that you treat people, will they hold up before the judgment seat of Christ? Are your motives pure or evil? Are they misguided? Or are they merciful? Is your flesh leading the way? Is your spirit, the spirit of God? What will be left after everything is tested by that purifying fire? Whatever's left, that's your reward in heaven. So let's let motivation, or let's let mercy be our motivation. Can't go wrong with mercy. Let's have a heart that says, God gave me a place in the family of God. I have a place at the table of God, not because of what I look like, not because of how much money my family had or didn't have, not because of anything that I can offer to him. He gave me a seat at his table because of his mercy. I said, yes, I want to follow you. And he invited me in with open arms of mercy. So let's have that same approach. Let mercy 
be our motivation. You don't look like you deserve the time of day, but I'm going to give it to you because Jesus gave me the time of day for eternity. We have a merciful view. I think I may have heard this verse that I'm about to close with more than any other verse growing up. Because I went to a church where they passed the bucket, they collected the offering, and there was an offering talk, like a mini offering message every week. And they came back to this verse often. Luke 6, 38. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Jesus isn't talking about money here. Now, there's a law of seed, time, and harvest where if you give money, then you will get money. But he's not talking about money here. Some of you are like, oh, man. But I'm telling you, this is better news. I'd rather he be talking about mercy here than money. And that's what he's talking about. Look at the very, the, the, the very verse before this. Luke 6, 37. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others or it will all come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. So James, once again, is circling back to the teaching of his brother Jesus, to the Sermon on the Mount saying, if you've been merciful, God will be merciful with you. He's saying, give mercy and you'll receive mercy and it will be pressed down, shaken together and running over to make room for more. It will be poured into your lap. But if you give judgment that's by, uh, guided by evil motives, it will return to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, judgment will be poured into your lap as you sit at the mercy seat. I don't know about you, but when that day comes and I am sitting in the mercy seat of Christ, I want a lap full of mercy. I want a lap full of mercy, not a lap full of judgment. So I'm fighting and I'm contending and I'm being very clear with you today because I want the Spirit of God to lead us in our interactions with humankind. Discrimination has no place in the life of the followers of Jesus Christ. If you would, would you bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.